morning's reading comes from the book of Job. It's chapter 2, and we'll read the whole chapter, so we'll start at the first verse. On another day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them to present himself before him. And the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? And Satan answered the Lord, from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. Skin for skin, Satan replied. A man will give all he has for his own life. But now stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, Are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. He replied, You are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. When Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Termonite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namathite, heard about all the trouble that came upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathise with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognise him. They began to weep aloud, they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights, and no one said a word to him, because they saw how great his suffering was. Here ends our reading. Oh, good morning, everyone. How is everyone doing this morning? Raise your hands if you've got cold feet right now. <laughs> I saw one of you wearing thongs. What is going on? That is mental. <laughs> but I hope even if you've got cold feet, you've got a warm heart and uh, you've had a warm welcome this morning. I'm going to pray and we're going to get down to this business of the question of evil uh, from the book of Job. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, this chance. Thank you for your scriptures, the way they speak to us. And Lord, we want to be people who listen, not just with ears, but with souls um, and just hearts that want to change to be more like Jesus, that we may glorify your name. Amen. Uh, By the way, as we begin, if you want to have your Bibles open to Job chapter 40, 41 on page 533, that would be great. That's Job 41, page 533. Now, there is a basic question that you face, I think, uh, if you've been a Christian for any length of time. In fact, not just if you're a Christian, but if you believe in God. And that is, if God is loving and he's powerful, why is there evil in the world? Surely, if he's loving, he wouldn't want evil to exist or to continue to exist. If he was powerful, then he wouldn't have to put up with it. He could just eliminate it entirely. That's kind of the classic formulation of this problem. And if you've thought up this question in your own mind... Be advised, you're not the first person. Uh, People have been wondering about it for ages. Why is there evil? 
Now, if you don't believe in God, then you don't have to deal with this question. Or do you? If there's no God, how do you explain evil? Can there even be such a thing as right and wrong, good and evil? Perhaps not if you don't believe in God. But we do believe in God, so what do we do with the presence of evil in this world? Well, today we're going to attack that question from the Old Testament book of Job that we're kind of in the middle of uh, over the winter holiday period. Now, I've shared uh, with some of you uh, in the past that I'm a big fan of the iPhone. Now, not because I'm an Apple fanboy necessarily, but mainly because it appeals to my totally anal retentive personality, total neat freak. Uh, I love with these little devices how I can put all my music onto it and uh, all my photos and how I can sort things by song, playlist, album, genre, how I can even like take photos with it. It's now a camera and it's a diary and it's even a radio and it's got all the games and it's also a phone. Like imagine that can make calls and uh, receive messages. But what I love about it is how I control where everything goes, how everything has got its place, how everything is just neat and tidy. I love that. Totally appeals to my personality. And really, I love how I can put it in my pocket and how I can turn it off when I please. When you read how God interacts with evil in the world, you realize that it's not at all like the iPhone. I can't control where everything goes. Everything does not have its place, according to my way of thinking. And certainly everything is not neat and tidy. I can't contain him in my pocket. I cannot turn him off at my pleasure. There is a wild, a mysterious aspect to his character, even though I know he is good, that I can't quite get my mind around. I can't categorize it neatly. And we need to be prepared for this when we look at the question of what Job says about evil. You might remember from last week, uh, we looked at what Job said about suffering and we saw that suffering is not simply, automatically, mechanically, mathematically or even necessarily God's punishment for your sin. In other words, innocent suffering happens, happens often, happened to Job, it may well happen to us, it certainly happened to Jesus. And when that happens, the challenge is to continue to follow God in faith, even when you don't have all the answers, even amongst the mystery. Now, today we're going to look at what this ancient book of Job teaches us about the related, but also kind of separate and different question of evil. And the first thing it says is that evil is a reality. It's not an interruption to reality. Now, I don't know what you thought of when we read Job chapter 1 last week, when Job's oxen and sheep were carried off, or when firestorms kind of burnt up his livestock and his servants, or when the the Chaldean raiders carried off his camels, or even as a tornado destroyed the house that all his children were feasting in. I wonder if you were waiting for things to return back to normal, you know, for one of the servants to come in and say, just Josh and boss, it was all an elaborate practical joke. Or when Job was afflicted with painful sores all over his body that we've just read about this morning, did that sound to you like it was a figment of his imagination? Or did any of his trouble resonate with you? I think we read what happens to Job and it resonates with some of us at least because what happened to Job happens at least in part to people every day, doesn't it? We live in a world in which evil abounds. In our society, like in Job's world, theft and violence threaten people. In our society, like in Job's world, natural disasters claim the lives of innocent bystanders. 
in our society, like Job's world, people suffer painful and cruel disease. Now, the book of Job, it's an entirely realistic book, isn't it? And it shows us that evil is a reality, not an interruption to reality. Of course, for many of us, uh, living in a city, living in a country like Australia, and then living in Sydney, which is the best city by far, and then living in Manly, which is the best part of the best city of the best country, you know, you can get so used to almost that privilege where we have most of what we need and just about everything that we'd like. And that maybe tricks us into thinking that we have a right or an entitlement to such blessing so that when trouble happens, crashes in upon our lives, we think of it almost like a commercial break on TV. You know, it's just a, a pesky interruption to normal pro- programming and we're mildly annoyed that the progress of our life is interrupted. But we basically expect a quick return to things getting back underway. That is under our way. But evil is not an interruption to reality. It is reality. And despite what our education experts suggest, education will not be the the solve-all for evil. You know, of course, that some of the regimes in the 20th century were the most well-educated people of their time. Despite what the left of politics says, evil will not be totally eliminated by a more even distribution of wealth. And despite what the right of politics say, evil will not be entirely eradicated just by a return to family values. It's not like there was no evil during the 1950s or whenever you think the golden age was. Evil is simply with us. And tax cuts, early warning systems, three chords in the truth, whatever it is, will not eliminate it. It's just part and parcel of the human condition, as Job clearly says to us in chapter 16, where he says, Men open their mouths to jeer at me. They strike my cheek in scorn and unite together against me. God has turned me over to evil men and thrown me into the clutches of the wicked. In other words, evil is reality. just is. Not only so, but... Secondly, Job teaches us that Satan's hand is involved in evil, at least some of the time. If you can remember back to last week or even in this week's reading, you'll remember that Job is described as blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And so naturally, God has noticed Job, but he has that really attractive kind of righteousness that doesn't even escape the interests of Satan as he roams through the earth. By the way, when the scriptures say that, it's not saying that he's kind of following you. He's kind of tracking you down. He's hiding behind one of those palm trees on the Corso. And if you just look back quickly, you might catch a glimpse of him. He's not a stalker. And he's no cartoon villain either. But he has a genuinely active involvement in the affairs of the world. Now, before we return to the book of Job and the story of Job, let's just think about Satan for a moment. Because to modern Western ears, Satan's a bit of a joke. Eastern folks, uh, those who grow up in Asia or the subcontinent, even parts of Africa, they've got no trouble believing in a personal force of evil like Satan because they're actually just more attuned to the spiritual realm, generally speaking. They basically didn't stop believing in a spiritual realm during the Enlightenment like we in the West have done. Now, of course, what would it profit Satan to draw attention to himself in the West when we are already so convinced that he does not exist. That way he can carry out his work while we carry on our lives unsuspecting. But I put it to you that we have dismissed Satan as a joke because we have dismissed a cartoon villain. 
We have dismissed a cardboard cutout Satan with a cheeky little grin and those pointy little ears and a pitchfork which he sassily uses to kind of poke people in the buttocks amidst the flames of a cartoon hell. Am I wrong? Uh, Maybe we think of him, Satan, as like Voldemort from Harry Potter at best. Very easy, isn't it, to dismiss a cartoon. And Satan laughs at us as we do. But just think about it for a moment, folks. Is everything that happens just happenstance? When tribes or nationalities butcher one another, literally hacking each other to death, as has happened in Europe and Africa in the past 30 years, is genocide just a national frenzy where everyone in that country has just forgotten that they're human and gone on a killing spree? You think there's no spiritual force behind that? Think about our city, and we live in a place in which um, alcoholism and drug use, especially the drug ice, and even pornography, has just kind of cut a swathe through families and communities and all of society. And you think there's no spiritual force behind that? You think there's no personal force of evil? Have you not ever felt the inward burn of temptation to do what you do not wish to do? To disobey God, even though you know in your considered settled mind that disobedience always brings pain or estrangement from God, don't you think there's a personal spiritual force somewhere in that temptation? Now, I'm not saying that Satan hides behind trees to try and catch us. And I'm not saying he's a little cartoon guy with horns and a fork. And I'm not saying that all evil in the world is caused by him and his agents. For sure, just the world which is arranged in rebellion against God, for sure, even our inward, corrupted, sinful natures are well and truly in the mix. But evil is real, and behind it lies a personal force called Satan. He's not an equal and opposite force to God, as we'll discover in a moment. And though he is not mentioned all that much in the Bible, which I think indicates we ought not to be preoccupied with him or his demonic agents, you know the most common way we are told to counteract him is to just resist him and trust and obey God. James 4 verse 7 tells us to resist the devil and he will flee. Resist him and he will flee from you. That's good news. So don't be afraid, he can be resisted, but don't be naive either. Satan is a reality, and he is active in our world. And uh, going back to the story of Job, that will actually help us to acknowledge that in this story, Satan initiates and he brings evil into Job's world. He scampers before the throne of God like a nuisance, uh, as if he were a chief mischief maker, making accusations. Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a hedge around him and blessed the works of his hands? In other words, Satan is saying, Job only fears God for what he can get out of it. Did you know this? Did you know that the name Satan actually means the accuser? It's what the word actually means. And that's what he does. Is he accuses and he deceives. It's what happened in the Garden of Eden. He accused God of withholding good from Adam and Eve and he deceived them into disobeying God From the very beginning, you see, Satan's hand has been involved in evil. But ever since, he deceives us into thinking that God does not have our best interests at heart, that he is somehow withholding good from us, that God somehow has ulterior motives and really cannot be taken at his word. And when we listen to those lies and we give in to them, 
Then he accuses our very hearts, doesn't he? Does he not whisper into our very souls at our points of weakness and defeat, how can God love you when you've done that? How can he be with you when you have thought those thoughts? Why would he ever love you when you say things like that? I mean, isn't that his basic strategy to get us? Revelation 12 says that, or describes him as the great accuser of our brothers and sisters, the one who accuses us before God day and night, though God will have none of it. But folks, we need to be wise to his tricks. He has always been the accuser. And he certainly is here in Job chapter 1, where Satan urges God to strike everything he has. And upon gaining God's permission, he scampers off to bring destruction to Job's world. He initiates, he plans, and then he brings the evil that comes to Job. But although he plans and although he brings evil to Job, it's absolutely necessary for us to see that God restrains Satan's activity. He restrains Satan's activity. Now raise your hand if you're a dog lover here this morning. Any dog lovers? Excellent. It's good to have you with us. Uh, We've minded quite a few dogs over the years and we're minding one this very week. And I have to say, I'm not a lover of this particular dog. So Monday night, I have to cancel my dinner plans because of the dog. Tuesday night, come home and there is a notice from the ranger who uh, has received some complaints about the dog. Wednesday night, come home, there is another complaint about the ranger. Thursday night, guess who has to sleep on the couch right next to the dog so he doesn't wake up the whole neighbourhood? <laughs> Jerry Seinfeld, uh, he used to say, he used to wonder who aliens would think was ruling the world if they landed and saw a man taking a dog for a walk. He used to think that aliens would be convinced that the dogs were in charge. And I think he's right because the dog is always out in front. Isn't that right? And let's say the dog wants to sniff around telegraph poles or wants to sniff other dogs. It's the man who has to wait. Isn't that true? And the thing that absolutely clinches it for me is that it is the man who has to scoop up the dog's business and put it in a tiny little plastic bag, which he has to carry around for the rest of the walk. So uh, whenever I walk dogs from now on, I'm very conscious of alien visitors, and I think you should be as well. And uh, you want to make sure that you use the leash to control the dog. You use that leash to set the limits of the dog's activities. And if you don't want it to hang around telegraph poles, you use that leash so that it doesn't hang around telegraph poles. You let it go only so far and no further. Now that is actually what God does with Satan. He sets the limits of Satan's activity. He determines that Satan shall go so far and not permit him to go any further. After all, they are not equal and opposite forces. It is undeniably God who is in charge. You see that in chapter 1, just after Satan accuses Job of following God only to get material blessing, and he challenges God to strike everything he has. You remember what God says? Everything he has is in your hands, Don't lay a finger on the man himself. It's as though he's got Satan on a leash. You may go this far, but no farther, says God. And you can see from chapter 1 that he does not exceed those boundaries. He is withheld by the restraining hand of God. And as the story continues, despite the extraordinary misery that's poured out on Job in chapter 1, Job refuses to curse and continues to fear God. And so in chapter 2, Satan again must go before God to obtain permission to 
to attack Job and says, Stretch out your hand, God, and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to his face. And remember, God says, Very well, but you must spare his life. Again, God sets the limits of his activity. And although Satan afflicts Job with painful sores, he does not go beyond God's instruction to spare his life. He he might accuse and deceive and initiate and bring evil to Job's world. His hand is only ever inclined towards those things, but God restrains his activity and limits his evil and his influence. So Satan's hand is always involved in evil. But thirdly, and I think most importantly today, it's God's hand that controls evil. God's controls evil. Now, I'm not saying that humans don't exercise choice, um, but I am saying that rather than it being outside God's control, it's inside God's control. And, you know, Job is so convinced that it's God's hand that controls or limits or restrains evil it's, it's interesting the way he speaks about the things that have happened to him because he doesn't seem to even acknowledge secondary causes. He speaks only of God as the ultimate kind of controller of evil. What I mean is that although a great wind knocked down the house which killed his children, he looks behind that sort of secondary cause and sees God as in control of it all. Although it was the Sabians and the Chaldean raiders who stole his livestock, he looks behind those raiders and he sees God as the ultimate cause. In Job's worldview, it's not bandits, it's not raiders, it's not fierce tornadoes, it's not even Satan himself who causes his suffering. He looks through those secondary causes and he sees God ultimately in control of his fortune. You remember in chapter 1, even though it was, uh, well, at the end of chapter 1, after all that had happened, he looks behind those causes and he said, the Lord gave... And the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And you think, no, it was the raiders. It was the taught, no. The Lord has taken away. Or he said just in chapter 2, after being afflicted by painful sores from Satan, he says, shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In fact, because God's ultimate control over evil is so important in the book of Job, we never again even hear of Satan after the end of chapter 2. The remainder of the book, 40 chapters, concerns the relationship between God and Job. Now, although it is right to say that God's hand controls evil, uh, in the sense that it's not a force which is capable of overpowering God, it's also true to say he's not stained by evil. It, It seems crazy, doesn't it? I don't know if you thought of this. It seems crazy that Job never accuses God of sin. But he doesn't. I mean, he insists on his own integrity, He concedes a sense of hopelessness. He wonders whether God has turned his back on him. He pleads for an audience with God, but he never charges God with wrongdoing. In fact, that's what he is commended for precisely. In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. And we find it difficult to understand how God can can be in control of it all and yet somehow be unstained by evil, but that's not only the consistent testimony of this book, Job, but of the entire scriptures. Listen to some of these references. In Deuteronomy, Moses says, His works are perfect. All his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong. Upright and just is he. Or in the New Testament, uh, Matthew's Gospel, Jesus says, Be perfect, therefore 
as your heavenly Father is perfect. Even in uh, James chapter 1, it says, God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Although Job struggles to understand justice in his current situation, even the fact that he remains a believer, you know, an insistent believer in the justice of God, it's just clear from the way that he wrestles with the whole question for 35 long chapters. Don't you think that if he'd have stopped believing, he would have just given up at around chapter 3? Now we can say with confidence that God is good. We can say that he is sovereignly in control of evil. It's not a force which can overpower him or has overpowered him. But we can't always say how or why he does that. And the problem's not with God. It's with our ability to understand his ways. Remember it says, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are God's ways above man's ways. So are God's thoughts above our thoughts. You know, for much of the book, Job pleads with God to hear his case so that Job can ask questions, so that God might show him justice. Well, God eventually does break that long silence in chapters 38 to 41. And as it turns out, God questions Job exhaustively. In that day, the scariest beast known to mankind was called Leviathan. It was a great sea monster. It could just be what we call the crocodile, but almost certainly it represented kind of chaos and evil. You just associate it with all that stuff. So in that day when Leviathan was feared above all else, God asks Job these questions from chapter 41, which you probably have open in front of you. Job, can you pull in Leviathan with a fishhook? Can you tie down its tongue with a rope? Can you put a cord through its nose? You pierce its jaw with a hook? Will he keep begging you for mercy? Will he speak to you with gentle words, Job? Verse 8. If you lay a hand on him, you will remember that struggle and never do it again. Any hope of subduing him is false. The mere sight of him is overpowering. No one is fierce enough to rouse him. Who then is able to stand against me, Job? Who has a claim against him that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. And you just think, wow. Wow. I uh, don't know what you think about him, but I love Steve Irwin. I mean, he was mental, but uh, his enthusiasm for wildlife was just so contagious. It was difficult not to get caught up with it. And uh, quite a number of years ago now, Steve Irwin appeared uh, through a trapdoor at the Logies Awards presentations. And it, so up through the trapdoor, in his usual car keys, carrying a very large, although non-poisonous, snake. Now, uh, Steve Irwin was carrying on in his usual uh, exaggerated, over-the-top kind of way, and what he did was accidentally fall off the front of the stage. <laughs> and as he did, the snake kind of went sailing through the air, and it landed in the lap of a Network 10 sports reporter, biting him on the inner thigh. Now, I don't know what was in the script, but I'm pretty sure someone then said, oops. <laughs> thing is, you put aside Steve Irwin's tragic death, there really was no one on earth like him in terms of ability with dangerous animals, was there? 
But, you know, Steve Irwin couldn't control a snake all the time, let alone a crocodile for more than a few moments. That's true. And certainly not the forces of chaos and evil. Only God can do that. And that is precisely his argument to Job in chapter 41. Job, if you're not strong enough to control Leviathan, if you're not fierce enough to rouse him, how can you tell God to deal with evil? Only God has got the wisdom to do that. I mean, sure, we can hazard some good guesses here this morning, can't we? Pretty good guesses at why God doesn't remove evil entirely. I mean, if he eliminated all evil, maybe he would have to eliminate us in the process. Maybe he is giving sinners more time to turn back to him. Maybe there is stuff going on in the, at, in the heavenly realms at that spiritual level that we just can't see. Certainly if he was entirely hands-off, this world would be hellish, wouldn't it? Sometimes, no doubt, he will let evil run its course. And we know that he sometimes give people, gives people over to themselves and to their harmful desires when they are so hell-bent on resisting his rightful reign in their lives. And without question, he will destroy it all in the end, on the day when Jesus returns. But really, there is this whole chunk of God's control over evil which we just can't understand. It's not nice. uh, nice. It's not neatly packaged like the iPhone, not at least according to our limited understanding and puny ways of thinking. But I will say, if you have any doubts that the way he deals with evil is wise, then you only need to give some thought to the death of Jesus. Because in the death of Jesus, he shapes the murderous intentions of the Jewish religious officials and the lust for violence of Roman soldiers and the political expediency of governors and the incitement of the devil himself. In other words, evil. He shapes all that evil into the salvation of sinners. He turns conspiracy and murder into salvation. And I don't know to the nth degree precisely how he does all that. I don't know how he does it without somehow getting tainted by it, but he does. And he turns the murder of the one innocent man into the salvation of all those who would turn and trust in him. And I say to you, brothers and sisters and friends, that is wise. And so I think that we, uh, at the end of the day, need to be like Job. Very easy when we experience or even just kind of witness evil in our world to blame God for it. Or to conclude that at best, God's powerless to stop it. His hands are tied. But the book of Job teaches us not to charge God with wrongdoing, nor to blame him for evil, but rather to seek him through the mysterious circumstances of our lives. We need to maintain faith in the goodness of God and his justice, even when it's not quickly worked out in our lives or in the world around us, even when it's not neat and tidy. Because if we can't stand against Leviathan, forces of chaos and evil, can't stand against the God who made it, the God who controls evil, we can't stand against the one who restrains the activity of Satan like a dog on a leash. So in faith, I would suggest that we stand with him instead. I would suggest that we stand with him. And I'm going to pray that we do that right now. Why don't you join with me in praying as we close. Heavenly Father God, we recognize that in the book of Job, there is a very realistic depiction of life on this planet. 
a life where evil is a reality. And Lord, we recognise that there are human agents that bring evil. Uh, There is a world that is aligned in rebellion against you. There's our own sinful natures, corrupted selves. Lord, there is also the personal force of evil that is known as Satan, the accuser. And we want to say that even though we don't understand how you control it all, you somehow do, uh, in a way that doesn't get stained or tainted by evil. And Lord, whenever we are tempted to doubt that, let us remember the death of Jesus, where you shape murder into salvation. And so, Lord, instead of our natural tendency to blame you or to conclude that you're powerless, Help us to stand with you instead, that we might be like Job and like Jesus. Amen.